Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. Hello, I'm Martin Bayfield, and this is the Rugby Tonight podcast. On this week's show, Canadian lock Jamie Cudmore, Saracens coach Alex Sanderson and referee Claire Daniels joined us in the studio to discuss the new tackle laws that come into play in January, as well as look back at the biggest recent talking points. Here's the best of our Rugby Tonight insight and analysis from Lawrence Delalio, Austin Healy and our studio guests. First thing I've got to ask, Cuddles. Your nickname... <laughs> is Cuddles. Yeah, yeah. Where on earth did that come from? That uh, actually comes from an uh, old coach of mine, uh, Roger Hatch, in the Capilano Club uh, in North Vancouver, uh, back where, where I started rugby uh, many years ago. And, uh, yeah, thanks, uh, thanks to Roger for uh, letting that one slide. And uh, it's, uh, it's always the ones you hate that stick with you, right? So, um, <laughs> yeah, Cuddles has obviously stuck with me for that quite a, a while. That is a great name. It's a great name. Now, what about rugby in Canada for so many years at times it's at the forefront of world rugby sometimes it seems as though it's an outpost and, and Canadian rugby is fighting and fighting and fighting to get itself recognized what's the state of play at the moment um, well uh, people are working very hard to get uh, rugby to the forefront I think uh, we've seen some great leaps uh, with the advent of the sevens over the last few years uh, especially being an Olympic sport our women's team and men's team are doing uh, doing some great things and have got some great results um, in terms of uh, men's 15s, we're, we're, we're struggling a little bit right now. Um, it's tough where you've got uh, many other parts of the world where you have professional setups, and uh, we can't quite uh, get that professional setup going in North America. They tried with pro rugby recently, but that's uh, unfortunately fallen apart. Um, and uh, we're definitely looking at different options with Super Rugby and uh, the Pro 12 uh, in here in Europe uh, for uh, getting some North American involvement with that. And um, so things are getting put in place, but we're, we're not quite there. But some people are working very, very hard. Well, that's overworked. Some big, big names have graced the field wearing the Canadian jersey. What about your route into rugby? How did that, uh, that come about? Oh, my, uh, my route into rugby was... Uh, well, my father is... Uh, my, my parents are English. They, uh, they emigrated to Canada in the 70s. And uh, my father always wanted me to play rugby, but there was no opportunity. Um, uh, when, as I was growing up, I was very big into ski racing, a lot of boxing, wrestling at school. Um, but never any rugby. Um, but uh, when I got into my teens, I, uh, I started logging, uh, working in the bush in the summers. And uh, during that time, uh, my boss, uh, a guy named Greg Richmond, who uh, started a club in Squamish on the west coast of Canada, 
And uh, he, uh, he was the president of the local club. And uh, he said, listen, if you guys uh, don't want to work on Saturday, why don't you come out and play a bit of rugby? Because he'd heard we'd be getting in a little bit of trouble, you know, down at the bars and uh, down by the river drinking beer and what have you. He said, well, you can come do the same thing with us, but you, but you won't get in any trouble. So, uh, so I said, well, this sounds like the, the, the thing for me. So uh, off we went and uh, played a bit of rugby. And, uh, and ever since, uh, I've never looked back. So I started with... Uh, playing in Squamish for a few years, moved to, down to North Vancouver and joined the Capilano Club, and that's where I got my, uh, my great nickname, Cuddles. Brilliant. Let, let's, let's talk uh, serious stuff. It, it's, a, it's an amazing route into, into rugby, and it's taken you into, into French rugby, where you have been one of the key figures. Um, here in Great Britain, in England particularly at the moment, there's a lot of conversation about what happened to George North a few weeks ago with Northampton and the, the subsequent handling of a concussion. You were very vocal about this. This is what you tweeted. Who is accountable in at-world rugby and pro clubs when their players are put back on the field after suffering from concussion? No one, hashtag Simbin. Now, there's a reason why you came in so strong on this. Tell us why. Yeah, well, um, I suffered uh, some pretty bad uh, after-effects after... Effects after uh, Two concussions in a very short period of time uh, of uh, the 2015 European Cup semi-final, and then two weeks later in the final, um, I was uh, I was involved in a head collision in the semi-final in Saint Etienne. Um, I was taken off the field for blood, but uh, our doctor realized that I had I had, had a concussion, and I was uh, yeah here we go. So this is it. This is where you, you clash head with uh, with Billy Vodopola, and you can see yourself there, yeah. clearly struggling. So, so tell us what happened. You're, you're, you're there and um, you're treated on the field. And what happened? You're taken yeah. off the pitch. So I was taken off the pitch for uh, for the uh, for blood and for uh, for the for the HIA that uh, which happened in the change room uh, during that game. Um, I was uh, deemed unfit to play. I was told to take off my boots and sit down. Um, a few minutes later, I was. Uh, the doctor came running back in the in the change room and said, listen, the other second row is no good. Can you come back on? And like any rugby player, we always want to play. Um, so I, I said, yeah, sweet. Laced my boot back up and went out and finished the game. What happened between the semi-final and the final? Because quite a bit happened, I understand. Quite a bit happened there. I was... Uh, I was I had some really bad after effects in the, in the week following. I was given complete rest. I was uh, brought in to see a neurosurgeon. I did uh, many tests during the, the 10 days after that, and I was deemed fit to play in the final two weeks later in Twickenham. Um, and uh, clearly I wasn't good enough to play because uh, the first contact I made in the, in the final, about 10 minutes in, I was, uh, I was uh, commotioned again in uh, the tackle here against Chris, uh, Chris Masoi. Because the thing is, when you look normal, at this, this image, it, yeah, it looks, looks yeah. fairly innocuous, but but you're struggling. Yeah, right there. That just the uh, just the impact here, of uh, of of the shoulder going into going into Mussy's side. That was enough to uh, to spark me out. And um, I was taken off. Uh, I passed the HIA. I was allowed to come back on the field as a, as I passed the HIA. And uh, later on in the game, I uh, I suffered a head knock uh, with I think Juan Smith uh, later on, and I went off for blood. And uh, during that time, uh, I was off getting stitched up. Uh, I became very nauseous, and I started uh, vomiting the change room uh, in front of a few, a few other players that were there uh, on, the, on the bench as well. Um, and I was still allowed to go back on the field and finish the game. So um, I think when we talk about protecting players' health, um, when things like that are still happening, things like George North being put back on the field, 
Um, it's nice to say we, we want to protect players, but uh, we've really got to put some action behind those words. And you've set up the rugby safety network as a result of that. Tell us what it does. That's Tell us right. why. You, well, you've told us why you're doing it. Tell us well, why. Well, my wife and I, we've set up the, the foundation, which is a fully non-profit foundation in... Uh, it's going to be based around education because in France, uh, I think we're at least five, ten years behind the rest of the world, talking about Britain, North America, the Southern Hemisphere, in terms of uh, educating kids, uh, school, school kids, uh, school, rugby schools, uh, the different um, federations around, uh, around the country, and uh, just getting the word out on how to properly deal with the concussions at the moment because I think uh, a lot of teams are doing very well before and after the fact but it's really the dangerous time is on the field. And, uh, and if anybody has any type of suspected concussion, that they're taken off the field and they're protected. Great stuff. It was admirable work. And what I must stress, of course, is that we have contacted Clermont. We told them that we're talking about this uh, this evening. As yet, they haven't responded. If they do, we'll, of course, let you know what they say. But, uh, Jamie, thank you very much indeed for telling us all about that. It is a fantastic story, and it's going to do the game a lot of good. Thank you very, very much indeed. Okay, Excellent thank stuff. You. Um, now, we've got the viewpoint of a player, but what about the coaches? It's, uh, it's an interesting time. For rugby, a lot of change, concussion, tackle laws. Well, who better to talk to than one of the coaches right at the cutting edge, one of the most exciting young coaches the game is producing at the moment. And he just so happens to play for England as well. From Saracens, please welcome Alex Sanderson. <laughs> The ever-cheerful face oh, of Alexander. Right. Every time we talk to you, pitch side, whenever, always smiling. I've got you love Christmas. I've got, it was Christmas, isn't it? Got to be not happy at Christmas. When can you be happy? Did you get your Christmas present? Did you get what you wanted at Christmas? I'm, we I'm wearing it, Martin. <laughs> this that is, is it. Okay. You That's like what it? you wanted for Christmas and what millions of others didn't want for Christmas. <laughs> Correct. That's brilliant. Yeah. The pre-Christmas sales, it's that bad. Great stuff. But now, just uh, we've got Jamie between you and Lawrence, and just as well, look at this picture. This is of you in your playing days together. Um, Lawrence, not a lot of Wasp players leaping to your defence no. there. I was just inviting him on to rugby tonight, that's all <laughs> <Yeah>. I was <laughs> There's no. a bit of a Gallic feel to that sale strip. It looks yeah. good, I like yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. There's only four there, though, lol. Yeah, exactly. You didn't need anyone. I can handle that. Yeah. Yeah. I can handle that. The, lol, the lol can handle that. Um, Alex, we're, we're, we've been chatting really important stuff with Jamie, and he's got an incredible story to tell. It is a story which continues and yeah. continues because player safety is absolutely, and rightly so, at the forefront of everything the game does. Um, you're a former player, you're a coach now. How aware are the players of, uh, of their own vulnerability and how much is the conversation within the changing room, within the club environment, about tackles, about uh, head injuries, about concussions? I'm more aware than they've ever been. Um, I'm better for it, I, I feel. You know, in the past, um, going back 10 years, that picture depicted, if you've got a concussion, you just fly into the next rook just to test your head out to see if it was OK. Um, and nowadays, because of the education, all the medical staff have been trained and they've given these lectures to the players in the pre-season, the players themselves are aware of the symptoms and they're also aware when it does occur to one of the players who's on the ground for instance, certain reflex actions when they've, uh, they've suffered a bad knock and they've, they've had a momentary um, uh, 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 concussion on the ground to stop the, to stop the play, to, to make the ref aware and get the player looked at as soon as possible. One of the things we noticed with Saracens last season was the little patches that the players were wearing behind their ears. We're not seeing it this year. Yep. What were they? What were they for? 
Uh, it was a pilot study done with the university in conjunction with the university to measure direction and magnitude of head impacts uh, to determine the level of damage that has been caused when they're playing rugby. And that's all that information has been sent off uh, to boffins who are going to put it through the computers and the algorithms, the logarithms, which is about as much as I can tell you in terms of the research gained from that. But there will be something to come back for the benefit of the players' welfare moving forward. Yeah, it'd be fascinating to see what that information is when it comes through. Now, still to come on the show, we will be taking an in-depth look at the tackle law amendments, which are coming in in January. We'll also be exploring how these new laws might change the game and how it'll be coached. Now, before that, of course, there's a small matter of the Aviva Premiership and the action over the weekend. Let's focus on what happened at the Rico when Wasps welcomed Bath on Christmas Eve. Big points for Wasps, crucially points as well for Bath. And when we're talking about points, hats off, congratulations to Jimmy Gopeth, 8 out of 8, 100%, and he's now, what, the 19th player to go through 1,000 points, Austin, in the Premiership. How important is it to have a player like that, Mr. Consistent, Mr. Reliable? Ask him to play anywhere in the back line, he'll do, it for, he'll do a job for you. Well, I think he's playing very, very well in a position where you thought Danny Cipriani and Beale would come in and maybe push him out of contention, but he stood up at the end of last season and said, I'm going to fight for my place, and he certainly fought exceptionally well. And you may be fooled by thinking that Wasps won that game with their flair and attacking. They didn't. They won it with their penalties. There was four tries each in the game, um, but they were still, when they scored the bonus point try, they were still kicking three, 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 because they're guaranteed penalties around the 10-metre line and Goppa's going to slot them over. He had, a, as you said, eight from eight and a, an excellent performance. Alex, you've got a guy like that, obviously, you know, Owen Farrell and Alex Lozowski at, at Saracens. He's just key, isn't he, to any campaign, a long campaign. Yeah, definitely, especially... Um, with teams with good defences, it's tough to break them down as Baths are, the second best defence in the Premiership at the moment. So you've got to take the points when they're on offer. And every time you go into an opposition's half, you'd look to come away with points. So I totally agree with what Austin said for the first time, I think, ever in, in history. <laughs> Lawrence, Mate, what who's, about... Who's, who's, we, who's looking after your sheep in Bulgaria if you're not there with that jumper? <laughs> Lawrence, we, we, players who really caught the eye, obviously, Thomas Young, Christian Wade, mm. and they... Can, uh, in conjunction with those players and the rest of the Wasp team, they absolutely took the game to the Bath defence. Yeah, I think they've got a much stronger squad this year, Wasps. They've, they've been building year on year, steadily improving. And uh, obviously, they've, uh, they're unbeaten at the Rico, certainly in 2016, and they wanted to maintain that. I think going up against also a very good attacking side in Bath, it was always going to be a tri-fest. I think we were royally entertained for those who, who went there. Um, and Thomas Young really caught the eye, you know. Um, he's a player that, uh, obviously, they've had George Smith and James Haskell, but um, he was one of these players that probably his dad coaches the team, so didn't necessarily always get in the team straight away because his dad was sort of being quite tough on him. And it wasn't until George Smith went up to die and said, you really do need to start picking your son a bit more because he's quite a handy player. And, uh, you know, he's, yeah. uh, he's, he's having a great season. I'm sure it won't be long before Wales are, are taking a long, serious look at him. Yes, Harlequins into the top half of the table. The Saracens finish the year top of the pile. But uh, Wasps right on their heels. Equal on points, it's points difference, which means the Saracens are top of the Aviva Premiership. The most notable, well, there's no movement, but look at that points difference now for Bristol. Just two points behind Worcester Warriors. That first win, could it kickstart their series, uh, season? Serious pressure on Worcester. Serious pressure on Sale Sharks as well. Uh, Alex, quick welfare check on uh, on the Saracens players, on Mako Vunipola. We're reading, obviously, an injury which might keep him out of the, uh, the Six Nations. What can you tell us? Uh, well, he's damaged his MCL, 
which is his medial collateral ligament, I think, in terms of doctor speak. Uh, but it's not serious enough to have, an in, uh, to have an operation. So we've got to manage it as it goes on, rehab it and assess it as time goes on. We're hoping he'll be back in time for the end of the Six Nations, but that's a very uh, positive, optimistic view. I'll well, give him all our, our best wishes for a speedy recovery. Um, Austin, I mean, I interesting movements uh, in the Premiership. A, a huge win for Harlequins. They had to get themselves in that top half of the table. You felt for their own confidence to stop the doubters for the time being. But a, a lucky win? Did they get away with this one? I think you can argue either way, can't you? And sometimes referee decisions go for you, sometimes they go against you. And there was a couple at the end of the game that uh, I'm sure poor old JP Doyle won't be that proud of. Um, this is the most evident one. Obviously, there's a, I think Jackson's on the floor. He sends his boot through. People think Danny Kerr's offside. Is he offside? Well, the ball's out there now, so he's entitled to move forward. But it gets kicked out of Heinz's hands and uh, gets put back into the rug. It looked like a knock-on, actually, in which case there's no advantage to play. And... Uh, the, the, then Danny is offside. But in reality, JP Doyle made two big mistakes. That was one. But just before that, Jack Clifford got a yellow card, which wasn't even close to being a yellow card, wasn't even a penalty. So sometimes the look goes with you, sometimes it goes against, and you take what you get. Lawrence, no doubting Bristol's win. No question marks over that one. Huge for the club. Absolutely huge. Yeah, they've had a really tough um, you know, introduction back into the Premiership. You know, Not won a game, but... Um, if you are going to stay up, you've got to beat the team above you when you're playing at home. So they knew it was an absolute must-win game. And uh, they've got a bit of momentum off the back of some Challenge Cup victories over Lyon. So suddenly they've got that winning habit, you know, in their, in their system. And, and they deserved it, you know. Um, you can talk about the way Worcester played, um, but I thought Bristol really deserved their, their victory. And a hat-trick from a, a seasoned, uh, in, you know, international in Tom Vandell. He knows where the try line is. And... Uh, it's going to be hard for them to pick up wins because of the quality of what's up against them. But, um, you know, that was a crucial one. Yeah, just one more try for Tom Vardell to go before he equals Mark Cueto's record. Um, was there a bit of, uh, bit of the pre-match team talk done for Bristol when they read the comments of, of Ben Teo, which he is alleged to have said here? I never envisaged being in this survival battle. I thought this was a club that had come up, would stay up and really kick on. That's what I thought. Top eight, top four, then grand finals. It's not really what I thought it would be. Um, misquoted. Misquoted. Well, he's saying that he was, well, he was I mean, misquoted. <laughs> Allegedly, you know he said that. It's good for players that they come out and actually speak their mind. You know, he probably absolutely thought he was coming to a club that would be a little bit further up the table. I don't think he was trying to deliberately uh, uh, intimidate Bristol. I think it was more of a shot in the arm to his own players to say, come on, guys, we've got to improve our performance. And uh, they're missing a lot of players with injury. Hoo-hard, the scrum half, can't come back quick enough for me for Worcester. They've got some quality and I'm sure they'll pick up a few more wins. Austin, what was most impressive about Bristol's performance was they did it most of the game with just 40 men. We've enjoyed a red here. You know what's coming next. They did not enjoy the red they received in that game. Uh, no, Tusi PC off. How do you Yeah, there was one? a lot of stuff on social media, but for me it is an absolute red card. In his last stride, he takes his eye off the ball. He's in the catch zone, so he's got to be super careful. He either has to compete at the same height with higher hips, or he doesn't go up at all and he runs past the situation. People on social media were saying, you can run past the ball and catch it on the run, but Wayne Barnes... He's got to look after the man in the air. Exactly, He's has to look to after look the man, after in, the the man air. in the air. If you're arriving late to a situation, to that catching zone, you ca either have to go up 100% committed or move out the way, because that's what happens, you get sent off. Yeah. And it was 100% right. Yeah, I mean, as a player now, there's a lot you've got to think about in this game. Well, it's not, it's not about the... The intent is not to hurt the player, but it's the outcome. And that's what players have got to realise. It's going to be outcome-based. The referee's decisions will all be about what happens at the end. And therefore, you just got to... If you can't compete in the air, just wait for the player to land and hit him legally.
great stuff. Lots more to talk about when it comes to the laws of the game. Now, when a Rugby Tonight Christmas invitation arrived, offering us the chance to sit down and chat to the 2016 World Rugby Breakthrough Player of the Year, Maru Toje, who better to send along than our very own 2003 Rugby World Cup winning second row, Benke. The game has changed a bit since I was involved in it. Improvements in technology and data analysis means players are under more pressure to compete not only on the pitch, but on the spreadsheet. But one thing that hasn't changed is two forwards getting together for a good old chinwag about the game they love. Let's head in. Maru Itoji, awful lot of firepower, destined for big things. Maru, it's been a pretty meteoric rise for you, culminating in, in your World Rugby Award for Breakthrough Player. Just take us back to where it all started with your rugby journey. How have you got to this point? Well, I started playing rugby when I was 11 years old. I was woeful. I remember um, I uh, had no understanding of the offside, offside rules, so I was offside at everything. But luckily, I was uh, a bit physically more advantaged than a lot of the other 11-year-olds. Saracens is a, a brilliant club, club for managing that pathway through. Was there a time where you sort of felt a bit overawed by some of the players you were in front of? Or, or did you think, actually, no, I can do this. I, I, I deserve to be here. At the time, it was the likes of uh, Steve Borfeet, John Smith, um, all these obviously legends of the game. And um, <laughs> I remember the time, I, um, as, I was, as you do, I was opened the door to the loo. And as I pushed the door open, John Smith <laughs> walked, was standing in front of me. That was the first time I saw him. They were like, oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I actually lost my voice. <laughs> he must have thought, what are this kid doing? <laughs> yeah, maybe the second row uh, roles were slightly different to, to they are now. Just looking at some of the stats for me, a big, big thing that's changed is the number of carries that the forwards are making has gone up dramatically. The number of tackles they're making has, has gone up as well. Um, a lot of that is down to less scrums and maybe second rows have a, a little bit more energy around the field because <laughs> they've not got so many resets. I think um, the, the quicker the scrum finishes and all that kind of stuff, it's, it's, it's good as it speed, speeds up the game and it keeps, keeps it exciting. The average for a second row is to carry an average of eight metres per game. You're, you're up at 16 metres. Is, do you have a specific role uh, to be one of the carriers in the team or is it literally just wh when you get the ball, you, you take your opportunity? <laughs> but I think it's a product of other people putting us in place and the attacking systems we have and um, the generals putting us in the right areas of the, of the pitch and, and uh, our coaches with our attacking game, planning our structure and stuff. I think all those things add, add into that. Now, I mentioned about some of the differences between when I was playing and, and when you're playing. One thing the stats don't show, which, you know, just from watching it, I'd say has increased, is the intensity of some of the, those tackles, those extra tackles. Um, the laws are changing slightly. Do you think that when we see those changes come in and, and protecting the head and, and, and looking after, is that going to make it slightly more difficult for the defender, do you think? Protecting, you know, from the neck upwards is, uh, is, is paramount. No one wants to get clotheslined <laughs> or, anything, or have a dangerous tackle coming in from that area. Um, but I, th I think it will be OK. You know, rugby is a physical game. Uh, rugby is always going to be a physical game. And unfortunately, from time to time, things are going to happen which, which you didn't plan for. But um, I think the, the, the right intent is there. And most people play the game in the right spirit. So um, I think it will be OK for the defenders.
He had a pretty impressive 2016, didn't he? Talking about the tackle laws, we'll be looking at that in a bit more detail. Alex Sanson, not a bad man to have around your squad, Mario Toji. Brilliant. On and off the field, on and off the field. He's a, he's a great fella, great personality, a good leader, as I was just chatting to Lola about during that uh, VT there. Um, yeah, he, he's a man who surpasses his years in terms of his, his experience and his leadership qualities and the kind of person he is. So he's only going to get better in my eyes. Great stuff, great stuff. Now, we have uh, already met our guests, but just before we meet our next guest, a reminder that Saracens and Leicester, of course, have the big game on New Year's Day on BT Sport. Tune in for that one. It's going to be an absolute cracker. Our next guest, though, we've already met her, but everyone gets their own introduction. She's an increasingly familiar face at Premiership matches. She's the most capped female international referee. Please welcome Claire Daniels. <laughs> Great to see you. It's kind of a delayed introduction. We've, we've brought you in. You've had a few glasses of wine now to focus on. I feel it's slightly unfair that we've kind of got you drunk before we chat. Everything OK? Everything's fine. The red wine was um, very quaffable. Very quaffable. Excellent. Jamie, there you go. Quaffable. Put that on your website. Very quaffable <laughs> red wine. Um, as I mentioned, we are seeing your face more and more now around the Premiership, but it is not as though you have just burst onto the scene. This has been a long, long road for you to reach the very top of, uh, of refereeing. Has it been a road you've thoroughly enjoyed? I guess you have. Yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's no different to, to be a player. The, 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 the route to the top is full of, of peaks and troughs. There are, you know, moments when you feel like you could go out and, and referee, you know, England, and there are other times you think, should have gone taking up netball. But actually, the, the journey is very enjoyable. It's very challenging. It's very rewarding. Um, and I think Barnsley, you know, he quoted it best when he said it's the best city of the house. Um, you know, you take the ups with the downs, the rust with the smooths, like you do as a player, like you do as a coach. Um, but it's an incredible journey, and I, I, and I wish I'd, I'd taken it up to be a, lot, a, a lot earlier than I did, to be honest. What was the route that got you into refereeing? Well, to be honest, we, you know, I used to play. I used to play um, for, for a local women's team, and we used to struggle to get referees on a Sunday afternoon. Um, and being a scrum half, I naturally refereed the game for most referees. A um, little bit chopsy, a little bit gobby, dare I say. And one day that the, the gauntlet got thrown down, and um, you know, the coach said, "Well, we, we don't have a referee. You've always, you know, been opinionated. Here you go. Um, the rest is history." So. Of course, you've got where you are because you're a very good referee. But you, it is for, for a lot of people of a certain age, it is very strange to see a woman refereeing a game. Has it been a bump-free journey to where you are? Has it been a bump-free journey? Um, there are certainly. You know, I'm not going to say that there aren't people that have an opinion that females, uh, female match officials should stick to refereeing the female game or they shouldn't be involved with the men's game. Um, and that's, you know, like the dinosaurs, those, those opinions will die out. Um, I've never... I, I've had a couple of things to my, said to my face. Um, in, in fairness, they've, they've been in Europe. I think one Italian coach told me to... Women no referee, go home and make pizza. So... You know, he obviously hadn't tasted my cooking, but um, <laughs> <laughs> to, to, but, but generally speaking, you know, you know, the reaction is very positive. The players, I don't think they really give a concern about your gender. They just want you to do a consistent job, want you to do a fair job, a good job, and and you know, if you don't make an issue of your gender, generally people don't either. So it's all good. Well, that's that's good to hear, and fairly soon, hopefully, in the middle of refereeing a game. Now we're going to put you kind of on the spot. We know you can't speak about the specific incident that we just talked about, the 2CPC uh, red card, because you were the fourth match official on that one, so mm -hmm. obviously it's going to go to disciplinary and you can't talk about that. So let's talk about 
this question of the highball. Social media exploded when, when he went off with the red card. What are you, as a referee, looking at? When that ball goes high, one person's going in, chasing it, one person's defending it. What are the points you're looking for? So, generally, I think what, what most referees are looking for is, is you know, are both, both parties who are going to contest possession for that ball in a realistic position to challenge for the ball? Um, and, and then, obviously, like has already been alluded to, you're then looking at, you know, whether their shoulders are above the hips, um, whether there's been a contest, or has the person got the timing wrong? Have they taken the space underneath uh, and, and just mis misjudged it? Um, but you hit the nail on the head over there with the discussion. It is outcome-based. You know, intent is, is a very, um, you know, dangerous ground to to take into, into consideration. So you have to base it on outcome. Um, and, you know, there are processes that the officials will go through when they, when they judge that. And um, it, it's, it's as simple as... Well, I say as simple as that, obviously, it's not. But... Um, you know, you've got the TMO, they've got the backup, they can replay, they will look through things and, and consider that realistic, fair challenge. Um, and, you know, like Barnsley said, you, you know, the player that isn't going to go up for the ball has a duty of care for the player who is in the air. <coughs> no different to if you're making a tackle, you have a responsibility for the person you are tackling. Um, so it's, it's, it's similar in that respect. You're all right, though. You OK? <laughs> Surviving? Good. Excellent. Have some more of the wine. Um, OK, we could go into lots of different scenarios, but one scenario which I guess a lot of people want to know about, um, let's say that, that kick was reversed and it was, uh, was Shilcock who was running for the ball, 2 pieces was defending. <laughs> he was stationary there waiting for the ball and a player decides to climb high and, go, and goes over the top of him. Is there, have you been told what would happen in there or is, again, do you have to judge that situation on its merits at the time? Yeah, in answer to your question, have, have, have the officials been told no? You have to judge everything as you see it at, at the time. And I think if, if a defender is taking this position under the ball or looking to challenge for the ball, he's stationary, you know, and, and he's a, go back to that realistic position to challenge for the ball, and then another player, you know, um, jumps over him or her... You know, you then have to ask yourself the question, well, who's been reckless here? Who, who's been dangerous? So, um, it, it's, it's... Have we been given directives on that? No. Um, do I know what the answer is? No. Can I say what, uh, you know, the officials might give at uh, any, any given time? No, I can't. But I think that would be an unfortunate rugby incident, dare I say, if someone just then, you know, uh, went up for the ball, made contact accidentally and fell over. But it's difficult to say unless, you, you know, you do see it in real time. The tackle laws. Ladies and gentlemen, let's discuss this one, kick it around, find out what's going to happen. Um, first thing to say, of course, rugby is always changing, isn't it? Is it not? There were ways we were taught when we were kids at school, the tackle has changed. Back in my day, this is how you were taught to tackle. Very simple. And then uh, they, they hung a child who hadn't done well in their tests from a tree and everyone tackled them. Um, the game is changing. Didn't always wear a cap while we were doing this. Um, but again, this is the drive for, for safety, uh, Lawrence Austin, without a doubt. What are the problems that we've got at the moment? What are the problems you foresee? Well, I think the problems we've got is that steadily, as, you, as you've highlighted over the years, the, um, you know, the level of where the tackle starts has just crept higher and higher and higher. You know, as you said, we were seeing... I mean, people still have a chop tackle around the ankles, but, you know, over the years, it's just got higher and higher, mainly to try and tie up the ball, because players carry the ball quite high. So they're nervous about them stopping the offload. Uh, and, you know, what's happened is, uh, is you know, World Rugby and, and various people have stepped in and said, actually, the duty of care now is to look after the players because, uh, 
you know, you can't start, we can't have a game which starts to hit players around the head and around the neck area. So uh, I think the new laws are, are introduced to try and bring that tackle area down. Well, rugby's always evolving, isn't it? Obviously, apart from the forwards. And um, <laughs> I think what you say is that coaches have got involved. They've changed cyclically over the years. In the 70s, people used to clothesline everybody around the head. It became way too dangerous. They dropped down low. They hit the waist. Then they came higher. Rugby league guys came in, started impacting ball tackles, used the ball as the focal point. And as Lol says, on average, most of the tackles now, particularly in heavy traffic forward on forward, and Jamie probably know this more than anyone else, is they all end up chest on chest. And Alex was saying to us before, actually, now they're talking about using other points of the body to get more leverage as well. So it's all about safety, but it's also about speeding the game up, I think. Let's have a quick look at what uh, World Rugby is saying. In a change to law, World Rugby has redefined illegal high tackle categories and increased sanctions to deter high tackles via a law application guideline. This will apply at all levels of the game from the 3rd of January 2017, introducing minimum on-field sanctions for reckless and accidental contact with the head, effectively lowering the acceptable head uh, height of the tackle. Basically, the head is a no-go area. Jamie... We're talking about high tackles. Rugby in France, is it, does everyone focus on the high tackle or are we, are we imagining this? Um, no, I, I don't think they do. It's, uh, it's really depends on the situation because when you look at that and you think about uh, forward picking going around a ruck, how can you not have contact with the guy's head? He's leading with his head, he's going low, you're going to have contact. Um, sure, guys stepping in from an outside-in tackle, there's some big hits getting in around the chest and maybe a little bit higher. But, um, you know, we, we still, in a, in a typical tackle, we want to hit a guy low, get him on the ground as fast as we can, and go after the ball. But, uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, accidents do happen. It's a contact sport. Claire, mid-season, you guys have got to take on new law amendments and new interpretations. What are you being told? What are you looking for? I, don't th I mean, I don't think you're going to see referees going out on a crusade suddenly to, you know, to, to spot every contact with the head and, and sanction it. Um, player welfare, absolutely. I don't think anybody is in any disagreement that that's, that's paramount. Um, but, you know, like has, has been alluded to, as if you're going to make a tackle... Um, and the philosophy of your team or how you play is to start, you know, mid-chest, you run that risk. And if players are aware that they run the risk, um, then, you know, any contact with the head, you're going to look at, is going, is going to be sanctioned. So... Yeah. Well, let's have a look at some of the examples of the game at the moment, the problems we have. They're not always clear-cut, but uh, the first one is a game against Sale for Saracens is tackled by Scott Berger. Austin, what are we looking at here? Well, Scott's obviously turned. He's trying to react to a half break and he shows his arm over the top and contact's me? made. For okay. me, you know, six months, a year ago, it's not even a penalty. You know, it's, it's very minor contact with the head. Ends up being a yellow card. That could be even more as we see what's coming up next. And the thing that I'm worried about is that this is dressed up as player welfare. I'm more concerned that this is actually the first act of litigation protection. So... World Rugby is trying to prevent any court cases being brought against them for tackles to the head. And they have, to, in fairness to them, they have to draw a line in the sand. They have to say, we're prepared to protect players to our maximum effect. Our duty of care is to this line. If anybody steps over it, then there may be sanctions. But for me, player welfare is not the only reason why this is being done. Well, player welfare, I mean, that is, you look after the player welfare and then the, the litigation side, it looks after itself. Yeah. Um, Lawrence, there's another one. Maybe this one was even more contentious. TJ Owani playing for sale. Yeah, what you're going to start seeing now is, I mean, this, this is a yellow card, but under the new laws, this will be a red card next, next, uh, as of, uh, of the third, because he started on the, on the, sh on the sort of chest, but actually, by not wrapping his arms, he's ended up hitting the player in the neck. And what we're going to see, the implications for players and coaches, 
is that what was a what was yeah, not a penalty will now be a penalty. Yeah, failed to complete the grasp, but he's actually hit him in the neck. So what what, what was not a penalty will, will now be a penalty. What was a penalty will be a yellow card. And for some yellow card offences, will now be a red card. So until players learn and coaches take on board that the, the tackle area and the target area has got to start lower. Alex, this is the point, isn't it? You now, as a coach, have got to re-educate your players. How much do you have to re-educate them by? Is it a complete strip-down rebuild or are you just fine-tuning? It's always tweaking, uh, particularly in the mid-season. So our defensive, team defensive system won't change but we'll have a greater emphasis on tackle technique for the individual and the adjusting defender. Just lowering that tackle focus and also improving the tracking of players so they get their feet closer to the collision. Because it's when players get stepped that instinctively a defender will put an arm out there to stop that play and that's when you can catch an accidental um, high tackle on, on a ball carrying player and, and, and get Sinbin for it. So to keep all the players in the field, just making better defenders. Things are going to happen, gents, aren't they? Players are going to leave the field to play to a yellow card, possibly a red card. But even if they go low, the risk of injury is going to be there. We are not turning rugby into, into touch rugby. It's still going to be a physical game. It's much harder to defend now if you're a big guy because previously you could stick an arm out, you could put a chest tackle in with a straight arm. I mean, if Jamie hits me straight in the chest with one of those arms, he's going to knock me down. You see here, with fast prove footwork it, Jamie, from Rocky Do us a favour and prove it. <laughs> mate, many have tried, mate. You're not this pretty after that many years. But... Basically, I mean, if I'm running at Jamie and he's known about all these new directives, he's going to have to drop low. You're going to have to go low. So if he's already set himself and I put some footwork or a faster back than me puts footwork on him, he's often going to find the head on the wrong side of the tackle. So what we need to be careful of is that it doesn't lead to mass confusion. And I think that's going to be a big problem in the next couple of months until players, coaches uh, and, and every, the, the game as a whole gets used to it, refs too. I think the, the issue we're going to have in the first two or three months of the new year is that because it's outcome-based, I think we will have a few games that end up being 12 v 13 because, you know, whereas referees would have normally given a, a penalty, because the outcome is somewhere near the neck or head, they're going to have to give a yellow card. So, you know, I think we have to have a bit of patience until everyone realises, as Alex says, that the tackle area has to be lower. And let's look on the positive side. I think there'll be hopefully a few more offloads in the game and we'll start to see a bit more, um, you know, continuity as opposed to the tackles dominating. Alex, what about the choke tackle? Um, is this... The death of the choke tackle, or does it carry on? Well, a choke tackle is when players run into um, heavily defended areas, generally off slow ball, and it's two or three players almost mugging that player um, clo close to rooks, generally speaking. So I don't think it's going to be the death of it, uh, but certainly less of it. There'll be, a, like I say, a lower tackle focus for, for, for the defender and even a lower tackle focus for the adjusting defender than that's the person who normally ties a ball up. We're talking six inches here, so it's not... Uh, massive changes, but certainly a change technically. Austin, what about players who are going to benefit from this? Are we going to see some guys absolutely coming to their own? Umpa-lumpers. All the small guys are really, <laughs> really going to benefit from this because, like I said, when you're running into these big guys in traffic, you don't particularly want to go in there. You know you're going to be chest-tackled, knocked off your feet, knocked to the ground, landed on by big, heavy guys that smell. And then what you've got to realise <coughs> is that when these guys are trying to trap back on you, we saw there with the tackle over the shoulder, you can't get that anymore. So if you're breaking a guy on the outside on an angle and it's all about pace and he's tracking you, Normally, they'd throw the arm over the top and arm underneath. A little bit like the uh, crocodile roll now. They're going to have to go both arms under. And that means the tackle point is further away and moving a lot quicker. So I think the faster guys, outside breaks, particularly on blind sides where you see them shorter numbers, you'll see a lot more breaks from it. And honestly, the, 
what we may be talking the old-fashioned tackle can still be very, very effective indeed. We saw this with Joe Myler in big game nine at the weekend. Well, we were all <laughs> taught as, you know, mini rugby to, you know, cheek on cheek. And uh, we're seeing still a lot more chop tackles. I think that's still relevant. But starting your tackle area round about the thigh and then if it goes wrong, you end up sort of round about the waist or a little bit higher and you're certainly keeping away, um, you know, from that neck and head area. And, uh, and Alex, they, they bring this in mid-season. That's helpful, doesn't it? Third of January. Well, there's always directives that do come in during the season. It's just one that could have such a, a catastrophic uh, influence on the game mid-season, uh, which is why it's a talking point. And particularly combine that with the concussion um, uh, side of the game, where people are, are more aware of concussions. I think the two things together have created this perfect storm for debate, really. Um, Jamie, you're going to be uh, be moving into a bit of coaching as well uh, in time with, with Oyana. Is, is this something which you dread, or you just think this is natural evolution for rugby? No, I think that's it. You know, the, the game's always changing. Every year there's uh, little tweaks on the rules, and um, you know, I've been I've been coaching for quite a few years now with the, the Espoirs, even with Canada last year. So uh, it's nothing new to me. Um, you know, you've got to stay abreast of all the changes and uh, and make sure that. Uh, you're on the forefront to uh, to make uh, have your team uh, make the best out of it, and um, you know as Alex said, you know there's little tweaks throughout the year to uh, to get the best advantage for your team uh, through all the different law changes, um, but um, I don't think it's going to be a, that huge of a difference. Jamie, your old boys, uh, Clermont, going well at the top of the yeah. top four team. One quick, one quick question I want to ask you. What's the view, what's the opinion of the French players towards Montpellier? So many South Africans, so many foreign players in the side. Um, in terms of view, it's, it's hard to say, really. Um, you know, I think Jake White made a lot of mistakes last year and kind of pushing a lot of the, the French guys out, especially a lot of guys that were in Montpellier who helped build the club and put it to where it is right now. Um, yeah, it's... It's kind of, it depends on who you talk to. Um, but um, I think if you talk to anybody that's uh, been associated with the club for a long period of time, uh, they don't like it at all. Um, and I think uh, Vern uh, going down there next year is, uh, is going to do, do a lot of good for the, for the club and definitely for the region. And what about you now? You're now at Oyana. They're riding high in, uh, in the second division. Yeah. Um, at the moment, are we right thinking that maybe around about 2018, 2019, you're looking at, at taking on a head coach role? At Oyana? Well, coaching, coaching is definitely in the future. Um, I'm still enjoying my rugby right now, so uh, we'll see uh, if we can't get the club back in the top 14 uh, at the end of this season and uh, obviously uh, stay up. So um, there's a lot of ambition for a small town, um, but uh, we've got everything we need. We've got a great training facilities, got a great stadium, and uh, there's only about 20,000 people in town. So uh, when there's 15,000 people at the, at the game on the weekend, it's, uh, it's pretty quiet uh, besides uh, being at the stadium. So, um, you know, uh, hopefully, we, like I said, we can get up back in the top 14 and, uh, and make a good go of it. What's the difference playing rugby in the D2 rather than the, the top 14? How's it changed? Um, it's, uh, it's definitely more forward orientated, you know, um, you've got to have a big pack, uh, you've got to have a, a good kicker um, because uh, the games are a real grind and if you look at the, the standings this year, the top really seven, eight teams are all very, very close. Uh, I think last year at this point in the, the year, Leon were already about 10, 12 points ahead of everyone. It was already done. Uh, whereas this year, uh, we're uh, Exico with that Agen in first place. And uh, I think going down to sixth, seventh place, there's maybe four or five points in it. So it's, uh, it's very, very tight. 
um, but um, it's uh, it's kind of the top 14 uh, 10 years ago. You know, very uh, Ford dominated uh, with uh, some tens that'll uh, throw up a couple highballs and kick all their penalties. Um, and uh, but it's it's a new challenge for me. It's uh, it's amazing. I've uh, I got 10 days off during Christmas, which is the first uh, Christmas holiday I've, I've had in about uh, 15 years. So uh, that's that's good for me uh, personally. But um, you know, as I said, it's a new challenge, and uh, and uh, I'm enjoying it immensely. Yeah, some big games coming up. Andy Good is with us in Newcastle for uh, the match Newcastle against Wasps. Matt Banahan is at the Bath game. Danny Cipriani is with us on Sunday as Saracens take on Leicester Tigers. Don't forget the highlight show on Sunday at 10 o'clock. Lawrence, Austin, prediction time. How do you see this weekend going? Austin, uh, you first. Uh, I'm just busy hacking the rugby tonight. Uh, Twitter account, actually, <laughs> with the girls here for a bit of fun. Uh, I think, well, it's, it's going to be a tough game. There's some really tough ones to call actually this yeah. weekend, particularly where there's a lot of injuries. Sarri's going to Welford Road. You would particularly pick Sarri's normally, but Leicester have got a great record at home this season. Um, not playing particularly well on the road, but at home they're much more difficult to beat. We both think Wasps are going to win away. We've disagreed with the Bath-Exeter game. Exeter, I don't think I've ever won down there at the rec, yeah, have they? They've won once, but I just think they've hit a decent bit of form. That's going to be a very close one. You can make an argument for the home side, um, as you could for... Uh... Saracens beating Leicester at Welford Road. Really tough weekend of games. Thanks for listening to the Rugby Tonight podcast. We'll be back again next week. See you then. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.